going to encourage you to find a seat. Great. Okay, welcome to tonight's lecture with Dr. D.A. Carson entitled Deep Change. However it is that you find yourself with us here this evening, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here. It's a common slogan on the college campus, be the change you want to see in the world. In fact, college has been described as a time of change and for change, for finding yourself, for recreating yourself, for deciding who you will be. Then you leave college and you discover that actually life is a time for finding yourself, for finding, recreating yourself, for discovering who you're going to be. The process seems to go on and on. But can people really change? If so, how does that change happen? Why does it happen sometimes and, and sometimes not? Why isn't the application of one's willpower always enough? And then on a deeper level, where do the expectations of ourselves that inspire change come from? Would it be sufficient merely to remain as we are? Well, we've invited Dr. Carson, a noted theologian and, and cultural critic, to help us grapple with the idea of change this evening. Dr. Carson is Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is author or co-author of over 60 books, including the award-winning The Gagging of God, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, The Intolerance of Tolerance, uh, about which he spoke two years ago here in this very room, The God Who Is There. Uh, he is a member of numerous academic societies and is co-founder with author and pastor Tim Keller of the Gospel Coalition. He's an active guest lecturer in church and academic settings around the world. Tonight, Dr. Carson will lecture for approximately one hour, and then the lecture will be followed by a short Q&A session. Uh, at that time, we'll be taking questions the old-fashioned way. There are a couple of microphones here that you can go up to. Uh, or if you'd like to tweet your question, you can do that. Just use hashtag DACalBears, or if you prefer, DACalBears. And uh, with that, I'm going to invite Dr. Carson forward. Granted, this year's results, I'm not sure anybody wants to be identified with the Bears. <laughs> I gather there's some people who disagree. Well, it's a privilege to be with you again. I was here a couple of years ago. Um, please excuse me when I duck out rather quickly. I've got to catch a red eye back to Chicago for lectures tomorrow morning. And so whenever you get to the point where the question is impossibly difficult, I will decide that it's time to catch a plane and disappear. The title assigned me for tonight's talk is Deep Change. Are you who you want to be? I'm sure you know the subject is both difficult and contentious. What I'd like to do is begin by staking out disputes that surround this topic before suggesting an alternative. First then, debates between nature and nurture. On the nature side, are we utterly determined by our genes? People have found, for example, a 
gene that makes one more susceptible to alcoholism. It doesn't guarantee that one becomes an alcoholic, but it makes it statistically more likely, all things being equal. People still enter into debates about anger genes. Will the time come, for example, when instead of uh, sending people to prison because they have got very angry and shot somebody, we will submit them to gene therapy? Or the whole discussion gets uh, pushed down several layers, and now we're being determined by subatomic particles, quarks whose half-lives are measured in nanoseconds. And how they bounce can be predicted at a certain statistical level, and perhaps they determine us. But of course, the harder we push on such theories, the more difficult it is to find any ought whatsoever. In fact, the harder we push on such a theory, then the very fact that we adopt the theory is itself determined by the jumping quarks. In which case, it's really difficult to grant any validity to the theory if it's determined by jumping quarks. Most of us don't live there in any case. And if we do, we cannot know what we ought to do and to talk about determining who we want to be and so on is so futile, it's ridiculous. On the nurture side, Oh, the theory, as you know, is that good homes, whatever they are, produce good people, whatever they are. And the way it's tested, statistically, is by observing that adopted kids with no genetic connection to the parents who are raised in some kinds of families are statistically likely to become stable members of society, rather more so than if they are brought up in other kinds of families. All kinds of studies of this sort have been advanced. I know a couple. The name is Downs. They had two daughters of their own. And then over the next 35 years, they were foster parents to about 30 kids. Some for just a few weeks, some for several years. The last one, a crack cocaine baby, they adopted. About 30 years ago, they were phoned by their agency and asked if they would take in a pair of twin boys, who at that point were three and a half years old. This would have been their ninth foster home. And apparently, the agency said, others were willing to adopt these boys, but they needed six weeks somewhere, a holding place. And Perry and Sandy Down said, look, we've got two of our own kids. We've got two other foster kids at the moment. We're full up. But the agency twisted their arms, and they took in these boys. The first night that they were down in bed, Perry went in to see them half an hour after they'd been put to bed. There was no sound coming from the room, none, which for two boys aged three and a half, twins, sounds somewhat unusual. He went in and found that both of their pillows were sopping wet. They had been crying quietly without making a sound. It turned out that they had been abused and beaten regularly in five of the eight homes where they had been placed. They were tested 
with child psychiatrists and so forth, and were judged irremediably, emotionally disturbed. As it happens, Perry and Sandy had them for another three and a half years when the boys were finally adopted by a fine home. And when they were tested again, they were judged within the normal range of, of emotional responses for kids then seven years old. One of those kids became an Olympian. The other today is teaching high school. And it's anecdotal evidence, but I cannot help but credit the stable home, the disciplined love, the self-sacrificing care of Perry and Sandy. Nurture. But even so, you can't dismiss genes, can you? You can't lump it all on one side or the other. I have a son who's a Marine. Let me tell you, he doesn't get it from me. He doesn't get it from my wife. He doesn't get it from our parents on either side. But my mother, I recall, did tell me something interesting. She had a great uncle, whom she never met, who was in Her Majesty Queen Victoria's Imperial Army in India in the 1850s, where he was known to be the best violinist and the best rifle shot in the Imperial Army. My son was told by his violin teacher he could have got a full scholarship to play violin, and he is a scout sniper in the Marines. I don't know where that comes from, but it's not from me. And yet these genes do come up in funny ways, don't they? So most of us live with some sort of ambiguous tension between the claims of nurture and the claims of nature. We haven't resolved these things in our own minds. Then there are debates between the individual will and the cultural heritage. Nurture now in a very, very broad sense. Consider the argument of Charles Taylor, who is a very well-known now Canadian historian. He argues that, say, 300 years ago, it was hard anywhere in Europe not to believe in God. It was difficult. It took strenuous acts of will and intellect to be an atheist. That was the default stance, some kind of monotheism. But now the reverse is true. Now the default stance is either agnosticism or atheism, and it takes an act of will and intellectual effort to believe in God. What has brought about the change? Whatever the answers, he says, this is the age of authenticity. What does he mean by this? Quote, I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with, number one, a model imposed on us from the outside, Number two, by society. Number three, by the previous generation. Number four, by religious or political authority. In other words, to be truly authentic, 
increasingly in our culture. We must self-consciously detach ourselves from the expectations of others, whether by others we mean the surrounding ideas of some group or agency or the like that is imposing itself upon us, or even by the expectations of our own families. Now, if you are a 1.5 Korean or a 1.5 Chinese, then you live with a certain kind of tension about familial expectations. If you were born and reared here without those sorts of cultural heritages, then probably you, there is a certain kind of um, willed independence. My father may want me to be a lawyer, but I've decided to be a nuclear physicist or study Russian or become a biochemist or, for that matter, run a warehouse. I'll do it my way. And we spend quite a lot of energy changing our majors as undergraduates so that most degrees nowadays take about seven years. And we certainly don't want to be imposed on by the previous generation or any religious or political authority. The irony, of course, is that this individualistic search for authenticity, for individual authenticity, is precisely what this large cultural development demands that we do. So our search for authenticity is itself our mark of subjugation to trends in Western culture that demand, in fact, that we be authentic. And we realize once again that these questions are extraordinarily difficult and contentious. After all, there are other cultures where the mark of wisdom is almost the reverse of these four points, where it is a mark of wisdom to pay enormous respect to older people and carry on familial traditions. A few years ago, I was in China giving some lectures. The chap who was in charge got up and introduced me and said, we are glad to have Dr. Carson here. He has just turned 60. And I thought to myself, I can't imagine anywhere in the Western world where I would be introduced with an announcement that I had just turned 60. <laughs> so when I got up, I said, I know why this friend here told you that I'm 60. It's because what he's really saying is he's now finally old enough to be worth listening to. I can hardly wait to go back to China when I'm 80. I'll finally get some respect. Do you see? Well, that's very different from our culture, of course, do you see? And similarly, there are many, many cultures around the world where instead of this search for authenticity in the overthrow of um, authority, uh, authenticity is found in the maintenance of a heritage that is revered. So then, deep change. Are you who you want to be? Or again, many conservative folk, when asked about their take, on a variety of sexual practices, register some degree of dissent from the prevailing trends of the Western world in at least seven domains. There's an interesting study by Mark Regneros along these lines. The domains that he lists are pornography, cohabitation, no strings attached sex, the duty of staying in marriage, versus quick and easy divorce, extramarital sex, polyamorous relationships of various kinds, and abortion. From the conservative perspective, 
Trends they don't like in these domains arise out of either rejection of inherited morality or some vision of a slide down a slippery slope. But Alastair Roberts of the University of Durham in the UK suggests a different explanation. It's in an essay you can find online. It's called Five Principles of the New Sexual Morality, posted in 2014, this year. He thinks that neither of those two hypotheses, that is, that this reflects a rejection of traditional morality, or that it's part of a slippery slide, though they may have some truth, they are inadequate explanations. He argues that there has been a much greater cultural shift in which a new morality has developed with five core principles. Here they are. Number one, sexual acts have no intrinsic meaning or purpose. and therefore copulation has no deep significance for individuals. Number two, our sexuality is a subjective sense and thus intrinsic to our self-identity. Provided we do no harm to others, we have a duty to realize our desired sexual identities, including if we judge it wise and good for ourselves, transgender operations. Number three, sexual agents are autonomous, rights-bearing individuals, and no one, no authority, no ecclesiastical body, no government legislation has the right to tell us what to do. Number four, freely given consent is the sufficient test of appropriate sexual relations. Number five, Beyond prevention of harm, sexual relations should be freed from any social policing or legal policing or other constraint. Well, these principles that are adopted at the level of axiom, they're self-evident truths for much of our culture. They're not to be questioned. They are simply accepted. These principles lead to all kinds of interesting stances. For example, there have been numerous instances where a wife has been abandoned by her husband and left with two children and complains that this is not fair. And she might win some sympathy for her claim. But if her husband has left to join himself to a male friend in a new homosexual marriage, then the wife will probably receive very little sympathy whatsoever even though the departing husband is in fact bisexual and is making choices that affect not only his own happiness, but the happiness of the children and of the woman he has left behind. Deep change. Are you who you want to be? It gets complicated. Is there no ought? None? Suppose that these points treated as axioms in much of the Western world are, for one reason or another, invalid. Read, for example, the little book, What is Marriage? It's not a distinctly Christian book at all. Just read What is Marriage, written by Robert George, Ryan Anderson, and Sharif Girgis. It's well worth reading. 
and it at least raises questions that contemporary media dare not raise. Deep change, are you who you want to be? Number three, debate over public worldviews versus personal opinions of what is morally permissible. I recently read an article by Brian Palmer, who describes himself as a secular atheist, writing in Slate. He asks the question, should we worry that so many of the doctors fighting Ebola are missionaries? Isn't that a great question? I doubt if the people being treated by Ebola have too many concerns. He wrestles this through back and forth and acknowledges without the medical people who are missionaries, the overwhelming majority of them, Africa is likely to drown in Ebola. And then he says, I quote, as an atheist, I try to make choices based on evidence and reason. So until we're ready to invest heavily in secular medicine in Africa, I suggest we stand aside and let God do his work. I thought that was rather nice of him. But do these patterns say anything about us? The early church went through cycles of persecution of one sort or another, but one of the things that tended to bring it to an end, toward the end of the third century, was the fact that when plague hit Rome, it was the Christians who stayed and helped those who were sick and dying, even though many of them, in consequence, fell sick and died themselves. And the pattern has recurred in the Black Death of London. It was the Christians who stayed behind again and again and again and contracted the disease. One famous late post-Puritan called Thomas Nash wrote a very moving poem as he describes his own symptoms getting ready for death. And he ends each stanza with the lines, for I am sick and I must die. O Lord, have mercy. Does this say anything at all about who Christians are? I have a sister who was a missionary for some years in Papua New Guinea. I was reminded of it yesterday when I was at another conference and someone mentioned another group from the South Sea Islands. She worked in a group that was pre-Stone Age in its technology. That is, um, even their arrowheads were not made of stone, let alone metal. They were made of uh, hardwoods like teak on bamboo shafts with some sort of native poison or an organic poison on the tips. And with this, they hunted and did their work and so forth. A very interesting group. If you ask them what changed when they became Christians, they would say, we used to hate people. We used to kill people. We used to eat people virtually all the interior tribes, about 800 of them in PNG were cannibals. And now we don't do that. Deep change. 
Are you who you want to be? But now we're getting to the place where we realize there's a difficulty. Is the question itself already compromised by the worldview that we've inherited? Is the question properly, are you who you want to be, as if that is the summum bonum of life? Or should we be asking a question such as, are you who you ought to be? Is there no ought? Is the expression of self-authenticity God? So it's at this point I'd like to change gear. I'd like to argue that from a Christian perspective, that Christ offers an alternative way of looking at human change. It takes into account the complex roles of nature and nurture and social forces and worldview formation and um, tries to think analytically about culture and the different ways we value things but it argues that there is a powerful influence beyond nature and nurture and the like. Begin with the common language of conversion. The term conversion is used very widely in different contexts and different cultures, and it means different things in different uh, contexts. <clears throat> Sometimes it, it can be used even in the political realm. Oh, she was a Republican, but she's converted to the Democrats or the reverse. It's used frequently in religious discussion. He was a Christian, but he converted to Buddhism or whatever. But in most religious use, it is descriptive of external phenomenology. If in Muslim thought, you become a Muslim, if you convert to Islam, it's because by an act of will, you have decided to submit yourself to Islam. You are prepared to say that Allah is God, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, and commit yourself to the five pillars of Islam. That's an act of will. But although in Christianity conversion involves certainly an act of will, yet the Bible insists that in Christianity conversion is plain, flat out, miraculous. It's not just a decision to turn over a new leaf and try harder. The word that the Bible uses for this change is regeneration, or more briefly, new birth. Now I know that new birth has come to mean a lot of different things. Or born again, the expression is sometimes found. In popular parlance, there are some Christians out there who are sometimes not too bad, not too ugly, they're nice, and then after that they're born again Christians. They're the pits. They're a bunch of fanatics. So um, Christians I can put up with, born again Christians are, are a little hard to swallow. But the expression is not self-explanatory. It needs to be unpacked. As far as we know, as far as any source that's come down to us, the first person to coin it was Jesus himself. And that in the text that's printed for you in your bulletin. Now the house lights are down, so you probably can't read it. 
If somebody's listening, you can turn the house lights up just a wee bit so you can follow along. It won't hurt. And if the house lights can't come up, let me at least read you this text. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, I don't have time to comment on all the points in these paragraphs, but let me draw your attention to two or three. That's it. Number one, what did Jesus actually say about the new birth? We're introduced to this chap, Nicodemus. We're told he was a member of the ruling council that made him amongst the political elite. As a Pharisee, he was a respected conservative in the culture. And a little farther on, down in verse 10, he's called Israel's teacher. Probably that was a, a designated category, like a Grand Mufti, or Regis Professor of Divinity, or Research Professor of Biblical Scholarship, or whatever. It was probably a title, and he was way up there. That meant in the time that he would have memorized, for example, the entire body of what is nowadays called Tanakh, or the Old Testament. Memorized it. Plus a body of oral tradition about twice as long again. Could cite it, could debate, working with several languages. He was a scholar's scholar. He comes to Jesus and he begins by making a claim. You, you see, every religion just about has quacks and manipulators, faith healers that are depending on gullibility and a lot of quackery and not much more. They're painful. They're embarrassing. Don't you see things on TV that go in the name of Christ where you worm inside and you think, boy, if that's Christianity, I mean, how can you believe this rubbish? I think that. But what a man like Nicodemus saw was that Jesus was a cut up. Not so easy to dismiss what he did. He actually healed some people who had been born blind. 
he did things that were not easily dismissed as psychosomatic tricks. And so he, he observes, he means to be generous. We, we know that you must be a teacher sent from God. Uh, there's something authentic about what you are doing. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. After all, he was a respected, confessional Jew. He was not a secular philosopher. Jesus replies, in effect, my dear Nicodemus, you don't really see a thing. You see, you, you claim that you're seeing the power of God. You, you're claiming that you see the kingdom of God. You're, you're, you're claiming to see the reign of God in what I do. But the truth of the matter is you don't really see the reign of God. You don't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus says, uh, that's a bit much. How can a man be born when he's old? Is he going to climb back in his mommy's womb? Come out for round two? But are we to think that Nicodemus thought that Jesus was speaking at some crass level? That's the language Nicodemus uses. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. But you don't get to be Regis Professor of Divinity in Jerusalem without being able to spot the odd metaphor now and then. Now, I think that Nicodemus is asking a much more profound question. He's saying, yes, you and I do share the expectation that the Messiah will come, that there will be a display of God's reign on earth. But when you start talking about changing people such that they're starting all over again, you're going a stage too far. You know, you're promising too much. You, you can't wind the clock back except in theoretical nuclear physics. But you can't do it in our own experience, in our own history. You can't do it. Haven't many, many thoughtful people from very different backgrounds wished they could live parts of their lives over again? Alfred Lord Tennyson. Ah, for a man to arise in me that the man I am may no longer be. Or the poet John Clare. If life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. But as someone else said, the moving hand, having writ, moves on. Don't we all have the experience every once in a while, waking up in the middle of the night, halfway between awake and sleep, and we have a flashback of something we said or did that was so inordinately stupid or cruel or misspoken or poorly focused. We've hurt somebody, maybe somebody we love, or we've embarrassed ourselves, and we sit there and squirm half asleep and half awake, hoping we'd either wake up and shake it off or fall back asleep and forget it and, and you, you ride. Am I the only one that's had experiences like that? <laughs> if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. And Nicodemus, a hard-nosed theological realist, says, now you're going too far. You, you can't promise that. It doesn't happen. You can't be born again. You can't start over. There's no new birth. But Jesus doesn't back off. He says, oh, yes, there is. I'm telling you the truth. But he changes his expression now 
So it picks up a couple of allusions from the texts that Nicodemus would have known. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now, I've got to tell you, frankly, that that little expression has been disputed endless times across the centuries of the Christian church. Some people think it means you have to be baptized, as if Jesus is introducing baptism before there's even any church to begin with. And others say, this is natural birth. You have to be born of water. The waters break, and eventually you're born. And then there's spiritual birth. Then you're born of the spirit. You have to be born twice. The trouble is that I and others have looked valiantly, both in Greco-Roman sources and in Jewish sources, and nowhere have I found any reference to natural birth as being born of water. I don't think that's what it means at all. In fact, if you compare verse 5 here with verse 3, now you're doing a bit of textual work that you would do in a poetry class or the like, you discover that the expression born of water and the spirit is parallel to born again. In other words, whatever born again means, in Jesus' mind, it's picked up as born of water and the spirit. And a little farther on, Jesus tells him, you're Israel's teacher and you ought to understand these things. Which means he's picked up this born of water and spirit stuff from the text that Nicodemus himself would have revered, what we call the Old Testament. And you tick off the places where water and spirit come together. And you remember, for example, that 600 years before Jesus was born, a prophet by the name of Ezekiel insisted that a time was coming when God would cleanse the hearts of his people with clean water and pour out his spirit upon them to enable them to please the living God. He's talking about a renewal that is transformational, that cleans a person up and actually changes them. And, and then he uses a couple of analogies. On the one hand, he says, verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Pigs give birth to pigs. On the whole, hummingbirds produce hummingbirds. Rattlesnakes produce rattlesnakes. Kind produces kind. Like produces like. So how can human beings who are consistently flawed and broken and, and unable, become godlike, become spirit-driven, unless there is a new origin in them, a new pulsating power from God himself. And then he says, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This works better in the original language, which was Greek, where the same word is used for wind and for spirit. Probably they're standing on a street corner in Jerusalem at this point. And maybe a dust bunny bounces down the street, or a big sycamore leaf sways back and forth. And nobody is saying, hmm, is this cyclonic or anticyclonic? Is this because there's a high in the Arabian Gulf? No, nobody's saying things like that. But you can't deny the wind's effect. You can see the wind's effect. You can see the dust bunny bounce. You can see the leaf sway. And then you might see a, a storm. I, I was in Japan recently and got chased by a typhoon from Osaka to Nagoya because the bullet trains had stopped, so we were driving instead. Let me tell you, you can see the effect of, rain, of wind. The range is going in that direction. The roads are drenched. 
And yes, I knew it was a typhoon. I knew roughly where the center was, but I don't pretend to know all the mechanics of the whole thing, but I could see the effects. And then Jesus, having drawn this analogy, says, so it is with everyone who is born of God. Do you hear the sweep of that claim? He's saying that people who genuinely experience new birth have their lives significantly and observably changed. They may not be able to explain the mechanics themselves, just as many of us observe the wind but can't explain much about the meteorology. But you can't deny the effects. Of course, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people who call themselves Christians because it's an inherited thing. But where people are, according to Jesus, born again Christians, that's not what makes them creepy. It's what makes them change. Deep change. So that's what Jesus says about the new birth. Then second, why could Jesus speak so authoritatively about what he said? I suppose the most shocking lines in these verses are found in verses 11 and 12. Nicodemus still hasn't put this together. He asks, how can this be? Jesus says, you know, you're Israel's teacher and you haven't got this one sussed. But let me tell you something, he says. I'm telling you, we speak what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. Why does he word himself in the first person plural? Did you notice that? My guess is that it's because Nicodemus worded things in the first person plural all the way back in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Sounds slightly pompous. We know we do that you're pretty a remarkable healer, as healers go. We, we know this. And Jesus says, my dear Nicodemus, we know one or two things too. We do. And then he switches out of the first person plural back to the first person singular, because he really is talking about himself, not a whole group of people. He says, I, I've spoken to you of earthly things. This new birth takes place on the earth. It's not in some esoteric dimension. And you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? You see, religious claims are grounded in one of three ways of knowing. Some claims are mystical. That is, people claim some kind of direct access to the divine. Think Jodie Foster and contact. Or think some forms of religion where everything turns not on propositions or truth or a revered book or revelation or anything like that, but some sort of mystical, unanalyzable, very personal experience of the divine. A second way is reason. Many people across the centuries have argued that you can find your way to God by thinking about things properly. Many, many Christians have advanced proofs, and these proofs fall into various categories. I, 
I think that many of them are interesting, they're worth reading about, they have some weight, but they're not nearly as convincing as some Christians think. The third way is by revelation. That is, God discloses himself. And that's a hard one for us to buy. <laughs> but it's what the Bible everywhere claims. God discloses himself. And he does so in such a way that there are all kinds of evidences and the like. But at the end of the day, you can't sort of weigh the evidences and measure them all up and stack them together and say, I now have come to the conclusion that God is. For there is a sense in which what that does is, is put you in the place of judging God. Whereas if the God of the Bible really is there then he might be gracious enough to disclose all kinds of things about himself that we can learn and observe. But he's never going to put himself in the place where we become, where he becomes our conclusion. And the Bible everywhere insists that God discloses himself, and supremely, in Jesus. Jesus claims that he can talk about heaven because he comes from there. Well, at the one level, he's, he's, he's clearly a human being. He, he, he eats and he touches and he weeps and he, he, he interacts with people and he's got friends and eventually he dies. And he, he's a human being. But the Bible insists that nevertheless, strangely, completely, utterly, he's God who becomes a human being. So he can speak about heaven and the new birth and such like because of revelation. That's the nature of the Christian claim. And sooner or later, for those interested in trying to learn the authenticity of this way of change, it's something you butt up against and have to face or reject. Now, if I had time, I'd pick up the next little illusion, verses 14 and 15, but instead I'm going to come to the last point. Why Jesus came for this life-transforming mission. And it's all bound up with the last verse, verse 16. God so loved the world. In the Bible, love in God is often treated as surprising. Nowadays, if we believe in God at all, I suppose what we in the West like to believe the most is that God is loving, grandfather-ish, doting, soft-hearted. And, and that, of course, gives us all kinds of problems when we confront evil. How can this God, who's supposed to be so loving, allow such a terrible thing to happen to me? After all, I'm nice and pretty good, maybe even cute. And God allows me to suffer like this? What do you Christians think about that? But you see, all such questions are predicated on the assumption that God, if he, she, or it exists, is loving. Do you have any idea how rare it is for religions to speak of God as loving? In Islam, for example, Allah is sovereign. He's powerful. He's merciful. He's beneficent. 
But Islam rarely speaks of God as loving. It's very rare. It's not possible to speak of God as love in Buddhism. It's not the way the whole structure of thing work, things works. But the Bible insists God is love. It insists on this point for some reasons that initially we might find strange. What was God doing in eternity past? Before there was anything else, was God lonely? Did he have to make stuff in order for somebody to scratch him, stroke him, tell him how hot he was? The Bible actually insists virulently that God in eternity past was utterly content. In fact, the Christian doctrine of what came to be called the Trinity addresses this. In eternity past, though God is one, somehow in this one God is other. And the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. You see, in the pagan religions of Paul's day, when Paul was confronting the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, he, he, he realized that his neighbors had thousands of gods, just as modern Hindus have millions of gods. You couldn't cover them all. And each of these gods had their various domains. So you want to make a sea voyage across the Mediterranean, then you offer a sacrifice to Neptune the God of the sea. When you get to the other side, you're going to give a speech. You want to give a sacrifice to the God of communication, Mercury in the Roman world, Hermes in the Greek world. And you couldn't give all of your allegiance to any one of these gods because they all have their own little domains. In fact, Paul finds an altar in Athens that says, to an unknown God. Somebody probably erected it just to cover the bases, just in case someone was left out. Moreover, these gods, when you read the, 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 the Greco-Roman myths and legends of Greco-Roman religion, you discover that these gods are more or less like us, only more souped up. So they fornicate, they love, they hate, they're jealous, they can't get on with their mother, they want to kill their father. They're just like us, only more, more souped up. Do, 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 do you see? And, and, and so pagan religion in that world largely consists of trying to offer the right kinds of sacrifices to the right kinds of gods so you get the right kind of return. It's a tit-for-tat kind of deal. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Do you see? That's the way it works. That's what a lot of people think of religion as being. You scratch the god's back and then the god scratches your back. You want a blessing from God? Well, do what he says and maybe he'll give you something nice. But supposing you're dealing with a God who doesn't need a thing. That changes everything. Whatever else a relationship with him looks like, <laughs> it's not going to depend on scratching his back. It's not as if God gets to Thursday afternoon and says, Oh, I can hardly wait to Sunday when they break out those guitars and start singing my praises. I'm lonely up here. He's presented in the Bible as the God who has no needs. It's not that he is careless or not interactive or impersonal. He does interact with us, but not because he is limited 
by deep psychological needs that we can address by stroking him happily. So the Bible depicts God as loving just because he's that kind of God. Let me, let me, let, let me take this in an entirely different direction. Picture Bill and Sue walking down a beach here in California as the sun sets in the west. They're at the end of their fourth year. They've kicked off their sandals. The wet sand is squishing between their toes. He has, her in his, hand, he has his hand holding hers, and he turns to her and he says, Sue, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? He could mean a lot of things. But assuming that he's not trying to take advantage of her and really does care for her, then one of the things he means is, Sue, you are lovely in my eyes. I love you, and to me you are lovely. Doesn't he mean that? I love the smell of your hair. Your laughter is intoxicating. The dimple on your chin when you grin drives me nuts. And your personality is, is just terrific. You're fun to be with all the time. Doesn't he mean stuff like that? And if he's a bit poetic, he might even try to tell her. He does not mean, Sue, quite frankly, you have such greasy hair you could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. You have the personality of Genghis Khan. And quite frankly, your halitosis would chase off a herd of stampeding elephants. But I love you. I love you. He, do he doesn't mean that, does he? In other words, in these sorts of relationships, I love you is a declaration of the other's loveliness, isn't it? So this text says God so loved the world. Does this mean world? I can't imagine heaven without you. Your scintillating conversation, your brilliant wit, your contribution to the common good. I would learn so much from you. I love your sense of humor. Oh, world, world, I love you. Except when you study how the writer, John, uses the word world, you discover that the word world in John means the moral order of this world in rebellion against God. He came into the world, and the world did not know him, we're told. A little farther down in this very chapter, verses 19 and following, we're told, Light came into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The word world is bound up with rebellion and decay. It's as if God is saying then in this verse, world, quite frankly, morally speaking, you're the people of the greasy hair and the halitosis and the Genghis Khan personality, but I love you anyway because I'm that kind of God. And that is a shocker. The Bible regularly treats the love of God not as something that's easy to believe, but something that is hard to believe and is disclosed by God himself. 
Then the second thing to observe about this love is that the measure of this love, according to this passage, is Jesus himself. God so loved the world that he gave his son. How do you measure love? Three acres? Four tons? Five football fields? Here, it's measured by the Father giving what he values most. You're, again, you're, you're, you're driven back to the old Christian doctrine of the Trinity. In eternity past, the Son loved the Father. The Father loved the Son. And this Son, by God's own plan, with the Son's full acquiescence, becomes a human being. A human being who identifies with us and then actually comes and takes our guilt and our death as a substitute. That means the Father is out of love for us, who are not all that charming, gives his Son that we might have life. That is the heart of the good news that the Bible presents. And the purpose of all of this is, we're told, that we might have life. We might have this new birth. It's still a new birth that is being explicated. Do you see? And the means of accessing this new birth, we're told, is faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One small reflection on this notion of faith. What does faith meet and the, mean on the streets of Berkeley? Probably one of two things. Faith sometimes is used as a synonym for religion. There are many religions, there are many faiths. More commonly, it means something like a personal, subjective, religious choice. Nothing to do with facts or with truth. It's a personal, subjective, religious choice. So it might be bound up with some kind of personal, self-authenticating, religious decision. For you, you believe in Jesus. For you, you believe in Allah. For you, you believe in Krishna. For you, you believe in crystals and their vibration. For I'm a very spiritual person, you know. The, 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 the crystals mean quite a lot to me. And that, too, is a kind of faith. I'm not mocking any of them. All of these are faiths that are, that are commonly adopted. Faith is a personal, subjective, religious choice. But I have to tell you, the Bible never uses the word faith that way. Not once. Not once. It uses it several different ways. They're interesting, but not that way. In fact, at the heart of faith, in its dominant usage, it's a God-given ability to believe certain things that are genuinely true. And in consequence, trust the God who has disclosed them. Let me give you one example, and we're done. Jesus not only died, and according to the Bible, he dies to take our death, but he actually rises again. Resurrection. Easter, the first day of the week. An empty tomb. More than 500 witnesses 
He rises from the dead. You can't make sense of biblical Christianity without integrating Jesus' resurrection into your thinking. Can't be done. Can't be done. But there were some people that the Apostle Paul wrote to about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection who were having a hard job swallowing it. So he wrote to them in his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, and he said, all right, suppose for argument's sake Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What would follow from that? Oh, he lists several things. I don't have time to go through them all. But one of the things he says is, the witnesses who claim they saw Jesus then all turn out to be a bunch of fools or a bunch of liars. After all, the, the Christian claim is that Jesus rose in history, space-time history, real history. And the only access we have to historical events is witnesses. And there were 500 of them. And it turns out the whole lot are a bunch of mixed-up buffoons or liars and manipulators. So do you want to say that about all the witnesses that you know personally? And then he says, moreover, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, when in fact he didn't, then your faith is useless. Do you hear that? Faith's validity in the Bible turns in part on the truthfulness of faith's object. That's why the Bible never, ever, ever says, believe, just believe, shut up and believe, don't ask questions, don't be stupid, just believe, shut up and believe. No, the way the Bible encourages faith is by articulating and defending truth. And genuine faith begins by coming to grips with the truth that God has disclosed of himself, including the death and resurrection of Jesus. It invites and commands you to believe and then gives reasons and witnesses and all the rest. But at the end of the day, it takes this thing called faith, God-given faith. So to commit ourselves to this God, that we haven't earned his love, we haven't worked to get it, we haven't tried harder, we've received his gift by faith. That's why this text says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Deep change. Are you who you want to be? Are you who you ought to be? Now, I understand there's at least a few minutes before I have to slip out of here and catch an airplane. As soon as you ask the first difficult one, it's going to be time to go. I think Andrew is going to chair this so that nobody will beat up on me. And um, I think the lights are coming up a little higher so that you can spot people. Hopefully those will be working a little better. There we go. Uh, come to the microphone if you'd like to ask a question. And I'll go ahead and lead off with the first one. We have just a few minutes. But um, thank you for being with us tonight. And uh, we do have a few minutes. Dr. Carson has an 8 o'clock class to teach in Chicago. So um, that's what he's going to be getting back for. Um, are there ways, given where we are uh, right now, are there ways in which, in thinking of Nicodemus, the intellect gets in the way of the process of change. It can, it can. 
What the Bible insists is that it uses the language of sin. We hardly use the word today, but, but that sin has so corrupted us in our different dimensions that in our emotions we can be twisted, in our thought processes we can be twisted, in our evaluations we can be twisted, even though all of these things are good gifts that are properly to be used. So it's possible to inherit a tradition which just excludes certain things from our horizons so we don't even consider them while we're using our minds to dismiss these things, of course. Yet at the same time, the Bible insists that Christians must not be anti-intellectual. In fact, Jesus himself says that we're to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. So Christians don't want to be intellectual, but they don't want to assume that just because you're reasoning you're right. So that, f for example, at various times, in cultures, races, places, people have thought that, for example, by uh, gassing and burning all the Jews, that this was an intellectually responsible and proper way to purify the genetic pool of the human race. That was a serious intellectual commitment, reasoned out in great detail. The human mind can be twisted in all kinds of ways. In other words, I don't want you to stop thinking. I just want you to be suspicious of your emotions, your thinking, your reasoning, your faith, and look and study and see for yourself and ask if perhaps God will give you the kind of clarity to look at things a slightly different way. Great. We'll go over here. Hi, Dr. Carson. Um, so I have a question, and it's about a video that you recently published on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, you, Dr. Piper, and Tim Keller talked about how you three are encouraged by young guys like us. Can, can I reverse that and ask you, how would you encourage um, young college students? <laughs> oh, by coming to a meeting like this, of course. <laughs> uh, an awful lot depends on the habits of life that you develop. Um, ideally, I want college students to get involved in a local church where there is a mix of ages and ranges and families and experiences um, so, so that they're not just in their own peer group all the time. I, I, I think that one of the advantages of university life is precisely that there are so many of you studying and you're, you're doing a lot of things together. One of the disadvantages is exactly the same thing. Um, ideally, you want to get into a context where there are older people around and uh, families and single people and little kids and people who are dying and so on. That part is part of maturation and in the Christian world it's part of understanding what the church is too. It's not just a club of people who are all doing the same thing and all between the ages of 18 and 22. And now within that framework then what I would want you to do is to make sure you spend some serious time trying to study and understand scripture which we insist God gave us that he might disclose himself to us, that we might learn to think his thoughts after him. I just want to note, too, some of the questions may be coming from a Christian perspective, and some may be coming not from a Christian perspective, and, and both of those are fine. I want to encourage all those kinds of questions. Thank you, uh, Andrew and Dr. Carson. Do you have uh, children, Dr. Carson? Two. So if you were to say to them, uh, you have bad hair and bad knees, um, but I love you anyway, that won't work, right?
rejection of fear, but from joy and being made to be able to Yes, it's a shrewd question. It's a shrewd question. Um, the Bible insists that human beings are uniquely important precisely because they've been made in the image of God. And um, the irony is that that, that that also compounds our shame and guilt when we don't recognize God. So the, the Bible regularly says things like, as a father pities his children, so the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, and so on. The Bible speaks of the providential care of God, and so on. What it does not do, however, is come to us and say, because I have sent my son to save you, this is a measure of how wonderful you really are. In other words, it's an abuse of how the storyline of the Bible goes to say, what the cross proves is that I'm really, really important. What the cross proves is that despite my many failures and guilt, I'm loved anyway. And that is anchored then in the character of God and not in my ability to somehow win God's approval. That's a huge difference. Question from Twitter. Would we be able to understand love if evil did not exist? Yes, absolutely. Um, because, as I indicated, the Bible insists that in eternity past, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And in that case, they love each other and find each other absolutely lovable, absolutely adorable. See? So love does not depend on the ugliness of the loved. But nevertheless, it is remarkable to see sometimes that quality of love that loves the ugliness, the ugly person just the same. And, and you, see, you see, there is a sense in which we, we, we face that in all kinds of ways, don't we, in, in human experience. I've, I've got a son on the East Coast, a daughter on the West Coast. She, she, she is... Um, She's teaching a SPED, special education department. She's head of the department of a high school here in the West Coast. And um, suppose, God forbid, that instead of doing that, she decided to become um, a prostitute on the streets of LA. Does, does that mean I, I would love her less? I don't think so. She's my daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm going to love her no matter what she does. I, she's my daughter. I love her. But, but nevertheless, there are some contexts in which it doesn't sound like it. When she was 18 and at home and was taking the car out, and I said, you know, I'd like it back by midnight, if she only got in at 12.15 and 12.20 without a good excuse, then she was in danger of facing the wrath of dad. What can I say? But that doesn't mean I don't love her in another sense, unconditionally, no matter what she she does. So there are all kinds of contexts in which love language is used. I don't like the term conditional. I, I love her whether she gets the car home or not, but yet she, she might face discipline if she's got a pattern of getting the car home an hour late when, when the, 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 the condition to which she agreed was that she'd get it home on time. Do, 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 do you see? Well, now it's different. She's 32. She's on her own. I have a wonderful relationship with her and with my son. I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. All I'm saying is that the love language, even within the family, can be used in a, in a variety of different kinds of ways. And the same is true with the diverse ways that the Bible speaks of God's love. And um, within that framework, I want to argue in the strongest possible way that uh, God loves because that's his nature. God loves in eternity past and the persons of the Godhead are lovable 
God loves sinners, though he doesn't have to and doesn't need to, but does so in any case. All of those ways are ways that the Bible has of talking of God's love. Okay. One more question. We'll go back to this side. Hi, Dr. Carson. Thanks for coming out to Berkeley again. My privilege. My question is, um, in speaking in our fallen nature, how is it possible to be who we ought to be? It's not. That's the whole point of the new birth. That is what the Bible does insist, is that um, God can come along and change us so that we become more of what we ought to be. There's an old poem that I quoted in another connection in a talk I gave this morning elsewhere. The law, that is, the demands of God. The law says do and always commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. In other words, it demands so much, but it does begin this transformation. It does not make Christians all that they ought to be. It does not make Christians. Christians are never people who are saying, listen, we've arrived. We'd like you to become like us. Never. Christians are poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. But Christians believe that this new birth, it starts the process of transformation. This process of new birth ends finally on the last day in utter consummated splendor in which we really will one day be good. I love the way um, Isaac Newton put it. Most of you probably saw the film Amazing Grace. Um, not, not a bad film. He got some of it right, but some of it historically didn't get quite right. The little clip in there on Isaac Newton is quite interesting. Isaac Newton, of course, um, was a slave trader. He uh, commanded a ship that went back and forth across the Atlantic, capturing African slaves and dumping them in the New World. He estimated that in his life he transported about 20,000 slaves. And then he was converted. And for the rest of his life he had nightmares hearing the, the, the slaves scream in the holes of the ships. But he, he was really transformed and he eventually became a pastor of a little church in Olney, England. He wrote the hymn that everybody knows, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's as a result of the new birth. And within that framework, he said, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what one day I will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's deep change. Forgive me if I abandon you to catch a plane. Thank you so God much for you. being with us. We're going to dismiss you, but I wanted to uh, let you know that there will be some people up front here, and if you want to continue this conversation, uh, we'll be up here and we'd love to continue it with you. Also, if you're looking for a community 
as Dr. Carson mentioned, in which you can continue this conversation. We've got some lists of different places you might try, and you can come up and get those. And even if you would like some prayer, uh, we're available up here for you. Uh, so with that, thank you for being here tonight, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again.